service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Fleetwood Mac are insane. Drummer Mick Fleetwood reportedly snorted over seven miles of cocaine in his lifetime. The band lost not one, but two guitarists to predatory Jesus freaks. Two band members were arrested on gun charges. Another was believed to pay roadies to administer cocaine via enema. Come on, I couldn't not say it. It's only like the most famous rock and roll rumor of all time, despite being total bullshit. But more on this to come later in the episode. And famously, band members involved themselves with each other romantically in ways that brought on jealousy, distrust, anger, divorce and resulted in one of the most successful albums ever. Fleetwood Mac made great music. From their earliest days as an English blues band to the pop superstars they would become in the mid to late 70s. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Mustache Montage MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Tonight's the Night, Gonna Be Alright by Rod Stewart. And why would I play you that specific slice of Rod the Bod cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on January 1st, 1977. And that was the day the Hot 100 charts would feature a song that didn't come from Fleetwood Mac's rumors for 53 straight weeks, marking with authority the undeniable success of one of the biggest albums of all time. On this, part one of a special two-part episode, Smuggled Guns, Predatory Cults, Torrid Love Affairs, Cocaine, and the ever-evolving lineup of Fleetwood Mac. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland. 
Tara Brown, heir to the Guinness fortune, as prominent a member of London's swinging set as his father, Dominic, fourth Baron Oranmorn Brown, was a member of the House of Lords. The younger Brown, Tara Brown, pushed his tiny but fast Lotus Elon through the curve of the road. He felt the tiny machine hug him tight. His girlfriend sat in the passenger seat. Like him, she was blurry-eyed from drugs and alcohol. 1966 had been a whirlwind. The booze, the hashish, the LSD. It all made the nights pass in technicolor and the days drag in various shades of hungover gray. Tara's 21st birthday party from earlier that year was on his mind. Still, it was by all accounts one of society's most talked about affairs. Tara Brown knew how to throw a party and how to take care of himself and his famous friends. He flew them in by private jet. Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, Brian Jones, another heir, John Paul Getty, and poet Brian Behan, among others, were all assembled by Tara at one of his family's castles in Ireland's County Wicklow. 5,000 acres of greens and woods surrounding a grand lodge complete with full staff, chauffeurs, and all the requisite posh and decadence befitting a young heir on the eve of his 21st trip around the sun, including a performance that night by the Love and Spoonful, who currently enjoyed a massive US top 10 hit with the song, Do You Believe in Magic? Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, hardly upper echelon members of Swinging London, had managed their way into the party, no doubt, because of their relationship with one of London's most promising blues guitarists at the time, Peter Green. The three were currently mixing it up with a cocky young Sam Cooke-inspired blues singer named Rod Stewart in a band called Shotgun Express. Word had it that Peter Green, who was becoming known around London as the Green God, was about to leave Shotgun Express to replace that other god, Eric Clapton and John Mayles, Blues Breakers. And when he did, he'd be taking his rhythm section, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, with him. As for young Rod Stewart's future, time would tell. Mick Fleetwood entered Tara Brown's castle wide-eyed and full of appreciation of the moment. In the United Kingdom, unlike in the United States, you were born into your position and there you likely stayed. Class and social structure prevented you from upward mobility from achieving anything beyond your station in life. Rock and roll challenged that rule. Tara Brown challenged that rule as well. And the Rolling Stones in 1966 personified that challenge. For young London's upper class in the mid-60s, there was no greater accessory than a rough and tumble Rolling Stone. Mick Fleetwood was not born into this, but young as he was, 18 at the time, he knew he had arrived. Brian Jones, guitarist and founding member of the Rolling Stones, flung open the castle's giant double doors. Brian, cooler than most, devilish, but somehow kind at the same time, gave Mick Fleetwood a warm smile as he paced backwards slowly with the door in one hand and his other arm extending behind him to reveal the party in full swing. Men in the latest Tommy Nutter tailored Savile Row suits danced with women in short skirts and smart new cropped hairstyles. English blues blared from the speakers. Jugglers mixed among the crowd with costumed goblins for extra effect. Brian Jones was in possession of all of his charm. Greetings, how is my favorite Mick doing this evening? Come, come Mick, come inside, out of the cold. With that, Mick Fleetwood entered and was quickly ushered by Brian upstairs into a large private bedroom. The room was mostly empty and quiet, but for the sounds of the party leaking through its walls. In the center of the room, 
on a small table, a giant ball of opiated hash in an ornate hookah. Mick Fleetwood's jaw nearly hit the floor. Is it yours, Brian? He asked. Sure it is, Mick. It's mine, it's ours, it's here for everyone, so let's have some. Tara couldn't remember who procured the hash. Maybe it was the Count. He did remember that Brian Jones and Mick Fleetwood did their damnedest to make it disappear. Tara pressed into the Lotus's gas pedal and pushed him and his girlfriend through another curve at 100 miles per hour. He sped into the intersection at Redcliffe Square and Redcliffe Gardens. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Another car was coming. Tara slammed on the brakes, cut the wheel to his left, and collided with maximum impact with his driver's side into a parked lorry. He died the next day of his wounds. One of Swinging London's first rock and roll casualties. It shook Mick Fleetwood, who read about it in the news. So it did John Lennon as well, who would later write about it in the Beatles song, A Day in the Life. What Brian Jones thought about Tara Brown's death is unknown, for he was fast on his way to becoming one of London's next rock and roll casualties. Mick Fleetwood could sense the danger of his chosen profession. The rock and roll game was no joke, especially with the way Mick's generation played. Non-survivors need not apply. Bass player John McVie was Mick Fleetwood's partner in crime, as well as his rhythm section mate. And John McVie was a survivor. He and Mick made it through the 60s together, through that heady stint in John Mayall's Blues Breakers and the first few incarnations of the band that bore their names, Fleetwood Mac, named after the rhythm section, yet fronted by their incomparable guitarist and frontman, the highly expressive and emotional blues player, Peter Green. The band that led to John's marriage to Christine Perfect, one of London's most sought-after female blues players. She'd take his name, McVie, and Christine McVie would play on in a band that now bore her name as well. Her husband, John McVie, or Mac as he was called, along with Christine and Mick Fleetwood, survived the tumult of the 60s, the confusion of the early 70s, and the excess of their unprecedented late 70s success. John McVie would eventually even survive cancer, but first, in 1981, he'd need to survive Honolulu's top drug-sniffing dog, Max. Max was an alpha, not only among his canine counterparts, but also among the members of the Honolulu Police Department he worked for. If Max really was a dog, he didn't seem to know or care. One look at the way he carried himself, and you'd think Max saw Burt Lancaster's Sergeant Milton Warden character in From Here to Eternity staring back at him in the mirror. Tall, broad-shouldered, for a dog anyway, and authoritative, Max, like Sergeant Warden, did not fuck around. Max, while on his airport beat, caught the smell in the expensive luggage immediately. Cocaine. Tucked away in a brown and white tape package. It was too easy. What hubris the owner had, who'd barely tried even hiding it. Max's police partners used the package to quickly obtain a search warrant. With it, they followed the scheduled delivery of the package to what was, no doubt, a very rich person's home in the wealthy resort area of Nepali. Honolulu police, with Max at their side, rang the bell. Upon entry, they heard the sounds of someone frantically rushing upstairs along with the unmistakable sound of a toilet being frantically flushed. Max barked, non-stop. An hour-long search ensued. Max quickly turned up the brown and white package. In it, four grams of cocaine. 
the police also found marijuana and some pills along with seven guns, a Remington shotgun, three loaded pistols, and three rifles, all illegally in the possession of their owner, the owner of this home. This home with its gold and platinum records hanging from its walls alongside all of its opulent furnishings. The home of no ordinary Honolulu resident. The home of a rock star, of rock and roll survivor John McVie, of none other than Fleetwood Mac, who would now have to survive a trial for possession of illegal drugs and weapons and face jail time and possible deportation. He would, of course, survive this incident, just as he had survived all of the previous High Wire Act incidents that nearly spelled his doom in the past, like they had for numerous members of Fleetwood Mac. Doom brought on by drugs, money, and Jesus Christ. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacova's cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tecovis. If you can, stop by your local Tecovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Dot com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. 
However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Peter Green, guitarist for Fleetwood Mac, founder of Fleetwood Mac, the mid-60s blues guitarist, so skilled he was able to replace Eric Clapton in John Mayall's Blues Breakers, so impressive he would later be cited as influencing such rock and roll luminaries as English songsmith Elvis Costello and American journalist and screenwriter-director Cameron Crowe. Peter Green, the man who gave Fleetwood Mac its name after its rhythm section, the best rhythm section in the world by his account, the man who wrote Oh Well, Albatross, and Black Magic Woman, a song later recorded by Santana and sent all the way up to number four on the U.S. charts. That Peter Green was not having it. And by it, I mean money. Take the money back. Take the fucking money, man. I don't want it. I don't want fucking take the savage. No, but take him. Take it back. This was in 1977. But in 1970, Fleetwood Mac was off like a rocket. From 1967 to 1969, after Peter left the Blues Breakers, Fleetwood Mac had climbed to steady success as a heavy blues band with their first solid lineup, Green, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, and Jeremy Spencer. They had talent and influence to spare, Peter's songwriting especially, earning them all the trappings of rock and roll success they could ask for hit singles in their homeland, international tours, drugs, women. But it started to turn for Peter Green in New Orleans in 1970. Fleetwood Mac were sharing a bill with San Francisco's Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead sound man, chemist, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, dosed the members of Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green did not react well to the LSD, yet after that trip, he kept taking it. He grew morose, sullen, moody, and it started showing up in his already highly emotional playing. Music, in his opinion, became commodified. Music for money increasingly became a ridiculous notion. Music was about expression and expression only. Peter Green could no longer wrap his brain around playing the same song the same way more than once. How could he? He'd already done that. He'd already expressed that emotion. Peter turned his focus from rock and roll to Christianity. The fact that he was raised Jewish didn't matter. He gave himself over to his new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He continued to play, but eschewed the rock and roll trappings he was so taken by just months earlier. Mainly that meant no more groupies, and not just for himself. Quickly, as leader of Fleetwood Mac, he turned his judgy eyes to his bandmates, deeming them disgraceful for taking up with women after their shows. Peter could be found in his hotel room after gigs, crying in front of the 11 o'clock news at the various injustices being broadcast. He then demanded his bandmates join him in turning over all of the band's earnings to various charities. They gave, of course, but all of their money? This was too much to ask of young musicians who were finally realizing their rock and roll dream. And at that moment in 1970, outselling both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in Europe. Peter descended further into madness. He began wearing a big wooden crucifix and a papal-like robe, 
grew out his beard and hair long, not unlike artistic depictions of the Son of Man, and would only speak to the music press about one subject, Jesus Christ. Fleetwood Mac's success at this point, the accolades, record sales, ticket sales, the press, had all became a source of suffering for Peter Green because all of it was cheap, fickle, child's play compared to what he now saw as his life's true calling, to do good in the name of Christ. Peter announced to his bandmates that he was leaving the band. There would be one more European tour to fulfill previous obligations. But in Munich one night, after a gig, Peter Green disappeared, took off with some hippies. Real far-out types. Not your standard summer of love, 1960s zeitgeist type of youth. These hippies were more off the grid, underground, untethered from society in any real way. Dark and running almost entirely on LSD. Peter dosed for days straight at their commune. When Fleetwood Mac's road manager finally found him, Peter could speak, but barely. He recovered in time to play one final gig, but committed to living with his new German friends on their commune afterward. Peter's bandmates attempted to coax him to finish the tour, but in response, he melted down, wholly focused on the money, how there was too much of it, and how he didn't deserve it, how he couldn't possibly go on playing in the band and generating such unheard of sums of cash and all the darkness it brought into the world. Peter Green was unhinged. The LSD had tripped some wire in his already fragile psyche. Somehow, the band convinced him to finish the tour, but the Munich hippies, by this point, were all over him, following him on the road and back to London afterward. Shortly thereafter, Peter Green played his last gig with Fleetwood Mac at the Lyceum Theatre, ironically with the Grateful Dead. Afterward, he held his focus on LSD, Jesus Christ, or what he called unclean money. And throughout the 70s, he wanted no part of it. Which is why, in 1977, Peter Green, long since being a member of Fleetwood Mac, was threatening to shove a shotgun in his accountant's face and blow him away, demanding that he take the money back, that he stop the royalty checks from coming in. He was arrested, jailed, diagnosed with schizophrenia, and eventually released into his family's custody. Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green's old band, had carried on without him and found even more fame, but not through Peter Green's blues and not through visions of Jesus Christ. Instead, through commercialized pop and crystal visions, and the unclean money rained down on Fleetwood Mac. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Peter Green was gone, and so was Fleetwood Mac's other guitarist, Jeremy Spencer. Once again, the culprit, Jesus Christ. Los Angeles was reeling in the aftermath of the 1971 San Fernando earthquake. 6.6 on the Richter scale. More than 60 people dead. Half a billion dollars in damage. Tens of thousands evacuated. The near total failure of the water supply. The partial collapse of major freeway exchanges and none of it could keep the predatory Jesus freaks off of Hollywood Boulevard. There they roamed, down the famous Walk of Fame, barefoot over the sidewalk stars of Hollywood's golden era, Judy Garland, Burt Lancaster himself, Bogey and Bacall among them, all of whom would not suffer the trashy hippie funk stylings of JC's post-Summer of Love disciples. Garbed in literal rags, sandals if they were lucky, either way their filthy, disgusting feet exposed for all to see, with dirt on their skin, 
Long, mangy, and tangled hippie hair, headbands, homemade beads, say brother, spilling from their lips on repeat, yellow yuck mouth teeth, creepy perma smiles, wild googly eyes, all of it, gross. The hookers made fun of them, the crossdressers empathized, the pimps paid them no mind, the johns scoped for young strange, the cops harassed them non-stop, tourists averted their eyes, and Mick Fleetwood and John McVie asked questions like, have you seen this man? They were inquiring about their guitarist, Jeremy Spencer, and working through vicious hangovers. Blinding mid-afternoon California sun, unseasonable winter heat, the drag of the day's beginning. A couple nights earlier in San Francisco, their guitarist, Jeremy Spencer, ate some mescaline, tripped balls, played out of his mind, touched down in LA post-earthquake, took off out of his hotel like an aftershock down toward Hollywood Boulevard, and hadn't been seen or heard from in 24 hours. Their gig was canceled, and everyone feared the worst. Kidnapping, murder, Jesus. Mick and John handed out flyers, posted Jeremy's photo on telephone poles. The local news picked up the story. Have you seen this man? Local Christian churches on the up and up knew what had gone down. More Jesus death cult Tom Fuckery. They got in touch with the band's management and hipped them to some of the Lord's less than savory radicals. Cults, their locations were noted. San Fernando Valley the heart of the earthquake. Fleetwood Mac drove into the angry, upset belly of Los Angeles on high alert, scoping for their latest lost soul. They drove through the destruction, toppled buildings, destroyed homes, dilapidated bridges. Pedestrians peered at them from the roadside with shock through hollow eyes. Everything, it seemed, was happening in slow motion. It was post-apocalypse. The City of Angels was end times. God wasn't green, God was dead, and their guitarist was gone, baby, gone. Another one. How the fuck had this happened, McFleetwood wondered. Another Fleetwood Mac guitar player got religion and got himself lost. The so-called children of God had found Jeremy Spencer, and Jeremy Spencer wasn't coming back. Jeremy Spencer wasn't even Jeremy Spencer anymore. He was Jonathan. And by the time his bandmates found him, he was unrecognizable. Having shaved off all of his hair, denounced his worldly possessions, turned his back not only on his band, but on his family, his wife, and young child, explaining that Jesus would now take care of them. Fleetwood Mac replaced Jeremy Spencer with another guitarist who eventually took up with Mick Fleetwood's wife an act that eventually cost him his job, and along with band managerial chaos that progressed steadily through the next few years, seemed to spell the end for Fleetwood Mac. But Mick Fleetwood was determined to give it one more go. There was a new batch of songs to demo. He visited Sound City Studio in his and his bandmates' new home of Los Angeles to book studio time, and was struck by what he heard coming out of the studio's speakers. Mixes from a folk duo from upstate, the guitar playing was sublime. Who was this? Mick Fleetwood needed to know. He grabbed the guitar player's number from the Sound City producer and quickly rang him up. Lindsey Buckingham, this is Mick Fleetwood. Hey there, how you doing? I'm well. Listen, we're looking for a guitar player and I'd like to know if you'd like to come play with us. That sounds great. We'd love to. We, not I, we. Lindsey Buckingham finished his sentence with, because my girlfriend comes with me. Oh, my God. 
Lindsay Buckingham's girlfriend, Stevie Nicks, couldn't wait to get off work. She was exhausted. It was the hours she kept. Her shift kept her tied up until 5 p.m. By the time she fought through rush hour traffic and got home, it was six. Then she'd have to clean up for Lindsay, who worked from home all day, perfecting songs for their duo, Buckingham Nicks. Stevie would empty the ashtrays, open their tiny LA apartment's windows, light candles, and clear out the dank smell of dope. Lindsay, along with whichever other LA working musicians cycled through that apartment, Wadi Wachtel and Warren Zevon among them, smoked all day long while working. Stevie would handle the mess. Then she'd clean herself up, force herself to remember to eat something. And by 9 p.m., she'd be at Lindsay's side, writing and working on music with him until 3 a.m. when she'd knock off, start to wind down, crash by five, sleep until nine, be out the door by 10, and back to start her shift at 11. Welcome to Clementines. My name is Stevie. Can I take your order? Clementines was a roaring 20s-themed West Hollywood restaurant. Tourists, pencil necks, three martini lunch businessmen avoiding their bosses, geeks off the street, total cheese, hardly roaring, more of an unimpressive burger-slinging wax museum with waitresses, dames, done up in flapper outfits. Stevie Nicks was one of them. You want fries with that? She Santo and Johnny'd her way through her shifts. She couldn't remember the last time she had a real full night of sleep, and tonight would be no different. She wasn't working on music with Lindsay tonight after work, though. Instead, the two of them were meeting up with the three remaining members of the English blues band Fleetwood Mac to discuss joining forces with Buckingham Knicks. Little did Stevie know, this merger would prevent her from getting a proper night of sleep for the next decade plus. But it would be worth it. Magically, the two disparate styles of the folk duo Buckingham Nicks and hard blues of Fleetwood Mac fused into something wholly unique and wildly compelling. Lindsay quickly seized control musically, asserting his vision, chops, and songwriting prowess. It was hard for him not to, inspired by the power and precision of the Fleetwood Mac rhythm section he now had playing behind him. Teaming the studied guitar, singing, and arrangement talents of Lindsey Buckingham with Mick Fleetwood's steadily unique groove and John McVie's monster bass playing was like giving Mario Andretti the keys to a tricked-out Peterbilt semi. Something powerfully effective emerged, and this new sound was completely original. Stevie's singular vibrato, a voice never, and I repeat, never heard in pop music before, floated perfectly atop this new sound. And to Stevie's credit, she was relatively egoless in her new role in a band she'd share with another female vocalist, Christine McVie, who herself was also without ego, and in many ways, the musical glue that held these wildly different parts together. Christine McVie, formerly Christine Perfect, was a veteran and a total pro. She was an educated musician who understood harmony as well as she understood low-down blues. Her playing was tasteful, rooted in Americana, but fully conscious of the pop sensibility that was alchemating within this new lineup, and she sang like a bird. Stevie Nicks' voice may have been the siren call that pulled you into bed under the lace canopy, but Christine McVie's voice was the one that kept you there all weekend. The new Fleetwood Mac got down to work. They squirreled themselves away at Sound City with a new batch of songs demoed out at Christine and John's apartment and with a whole bunch of cocaine. 
America's first tidal wave of coke hit in Los Angeles in the mid-70s in Sound City Studios was practically fueled by the drug. Nearly everyone who worked there or entered used or was at least offered cocaine. The creatively obsessed members of Fleetwood Mac fell in love with the drug, at first as a tool to use to help them stay up all night working, then as a tool to help them fight through their hangovers the next day, and the cycle was full tilt. And in the beginning, it yielded miraculous creative results. The new Fleetwood Mac's first self-titled album, released in 1975, not to be confused with the old Fleetwood Mac's first self-titled album, released with Peter Green at the helm back in 1968, was a powerful reminder of the promise of American pop music. Not since the Eagles' eponymous debut in 1972 had an American band so effortlessly melded American roots influences into top 40 pop alchemy that proved irresistible to radio programmers and thus indelible to young music fans. Fleetwood Mac broke the band through in the States. It went to number one and sold more than seven million copies with three different hit singles, Christine McVie's Over My Head and Say You Love Me and Stevie Nicks's Rhiannon, not to mention classic album plays like Landslide and the side A opener Monday Morning. With success in America came a tour of Europe. The band stayed with Eric Clapton in England. Eric lived with Patty Boyd Harrison, George Harrison's ex, and Mick Fleetwood's sister-in-law. Patty was the sister to Mick's wife, Jenny. Clapton's massive home was unheated, and despite the copious amounts of cocaine they ingested, they all nearly froze. That chill stayed with them throughout their tour. That feeling of never being warm enough unless you were on stage, cold and hungover, were two constants. Cold in the hotel, hungover in the morning, dragging through soundcheck, freezing on the plane, exhausted at customs. France, Sweden, Germany, didn't matter where they were. They were frigid, hanging, and in no shape to deal. Especially with what was about to happen next. Amsterdam Airport, Holland, Netherlands. Whatever time of the day it was, it felt like morning. Whatever the temperature, it wasn't warm enough. And the show the night before cooked, and so too did the requisite after party. Waiting to pass through customs, the airport was eerily quiet. Fleetwood Mac's entourage said little, just waited in line, passports in hand to quietly move through this annoying ritual that always seemed to take too long no matter how quickly it passed. Band members, crew, management, hangers-on, long-haired men in heavy coats with unbuttoned shirts, chests exposed, too tight pants, smelling of cigarettes, dank weed and expensive cologne, women in floppy hats, coats buttoned tight, fur collars, expensive handbags, and the allure of rich perfume. All of them wearing sunglasses inside. They looked great, exactly like a traveling rock and roll band in the 70s should look. Glamorous, vampiric, hungover, and the women especially hot. Not just Stevie and Chris, their hair and makeup girls in the crew as well. The pervy customs agents weren't going to let them pass without a search. They had cause after all. Look at them. They screamed, drugged out mess. The women, just the women, were unceremoniously pulled out of line and into a private back room. Each was told to lose their jackets, then their blouses. Begrudgingly, Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie each of whom looked as though they could pommel the manipulative customs agents at any moment, obliged along with the female members of their crew. Then they were told to strip off their pants, down to their panties. The pervy agents could barely suppress their giggles. The girls, despite their brave front, 
were more than likely scared standing near naked in that freezing room, as were the men in the entourage waiting for them outside of the room with no idea what was going on. No drugs were found. The whole affair amounted to a pathetic, manipulative, and cheap scene. A humiliating strip search of just the women in the band's entourage by the male customs agents. Customs informed Fleetwood Mac's management that they were operating on a tip of the band's rumored cocaine use. Rumors. Not actual evidence. Rumors supposedly compelled the customs agents to search the women in the band's entourage. And rumors would also compel Fleetwood Mac to a level of success that would ensure the band would never have to fly commercial again. A level of rock stardom that was beyond the band's wildest dreams of excess and deepest fears of disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola. He's a bad, bad man.